0: prejudice. It's ugly, it's wrong, and it's not new. We're going to see that in our study in the Gospel of Mark this morning. None of us operate in a vacuum. We make judgments, we draw conclusions, we evaluate and observe through a filter fitted over our minds. This filter is formed over time, the product of years of use. It's formed from our worldview and our perceptions within it. It's influenced by experiences with those who are different than us. Education plays a role, both formal and informal. Uh, Certainly the presence of sin at its heart, self-centeredness plays a major role in creating the biases to which we are all subject every one of us has to face the existence of prejudices in our minds and in our lives unless we take the approach of the famous vaudeville comedian wc fields who once said i'm free of all prejudices i hate everyone equally (laughs) now Today, in our text, we're going to see the impact of prejudice and tradition. So, let me begin with some definitions this morning prejudice, preconceived ideas, judgmentalism, intolerance, bias, tradition, long established customs or practices. We begin in Mark, chapter 2, with the account of Jesus calling another disciple to follow him. So if you would turn in your Bible to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. And the scene is set in this story, beginning at verse 13. Mark writes, Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Who is this guy, Levi? Well, he's also by the name of Matthew. Uh, Jesus may have given him this name after he followed him, similar to what he did with Simon. Simon who he renamed Peter. Matthew means gift of Jehovah. That certainly didn't fit him before he became a disciple of Jesus. We're told that Matthew is a tax collector. Uh, He's also referred in other accounts to as a publican. I said publican, not republican, okay? These men paid a fixed sum of money to the Roman government for the privilege Of collecting taxes. They levied uh, tolls on exports and imports, as well as any merchandise that passed through their area. The main toll offices in Galilee were located in three cities, Caesarea, Capernaum, and Jericho. Uh, The tax collector then went out and charged whatever he thought he could get by with. He had a reputation as an extortionist. If he were a Jew, as in the case of Matthew, he was regarded by his countrymen as a renegade, a traitor in the service of a foreign oppressor. Uh, We meet another infamous tax collector later in the New Testament. He's a fellow by the name of Zacchaeus, the wee little man. Matthew probably had been following the exploits of this itinerant rabbi especially as Jesus used Capernaum as his base of operations at this time in his ministry in Galilee. It's most likely, I think, that Matthew has already come to believe in Jesus and his message. And so when Jesus asks him to leave what he's doing and to come and follow him, there's no hesitation. Luke, in in his gospel, Uh, gives a further insight into Matthew's character. He writes this, And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Matthew left all of his former life behind, his security, his identity, to follow Jesus. And once he walked out of that tax office, he severed himself from his old life, from the manner in which he had lived. There's no going back. And what does Matthew do? He he throws a party, a farewell party, if you will, for all of his friends, and he invites them to come and meet Jesus. There are tax collectors. There are people called sinners. uh, There's probably harlots in this group. Luke says this, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. Let's go back to the text of Mark 2. I'm picking up and reading at verse 15. but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Isn't it interesting that Matthew would call his friends together, his buddies, to introduce them to the one who would transform his life? I think we often see those who have just come to Christ going out and talking to their friends and their family and their associates to tell them about the one that brings forgiveness that brings salvation, that brings eternal life. But I can just imagine the buzz around town. Take a look at that guest list. It's despicable. And some of the Pharisees, those religious leaders who are committed to living out their understanding of the requirements of the Old Testament law to the nth degree, came peeking in the windows and the door. And they were mortified. They were disgusted. They were indignant at what they observed. Now, what's the big deal about Jesus having a meal with these folks? Remember that sharing a meal in Middle Eastern custom meant far more then than it does for us today. It was a time for fellowship, for sharing together, Uh, It's a time for communing together, sharing. It implied acceptance, commonality. There's a depth of relating to one another in sharing a meal together. Note that the Pharisees don't bring their judgmentalism to Jesus, their prejudice to him. They go to the disciples and they ask, why does Jesus eat with this riffraff? Here's what's behind their complaint. They had defined their concept of Messiah. They weighed Jesus on their terms and they found him lacking. He fell short. He didn't measure up. I think this is one reason why they rejected Jesus as God's son. Because you see, if he were from God, then he would be just like them, he'd be above the level of these sinners. His place would be with them, not with those. What they'd done, they just defined God. They just decided what God was really like. But that's always a danger, isn't it? Even in life today of defining who God is and, 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 and what God should be like. It was Voltaire, the 18th century French philosopher, infidel atheist, who once said this, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and now man has returned the compliment. That's what they're doing, defining God. And so even in our own lives, we're tempted, well, you must not be God because you didn't do something that I asked for. You didn't do it in the way that I hoped you would. You didn't do it in the time that I expected you to work. We have to understand the deep-seated prejudice the Pharisees felt for anyone else, anyone who is different, anybody other than themselves. Look at Jesus' response again to him in verse 17. He says, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. D.A. Carson writes, These verses again connect Jesus' healing ministry with his healing of sinners. The sick need a doctor, and Jesus healed them. Likewise, the sinful need mercy, forgiveness, restoration, and Jesus healed them. The Pharisees were not so healthy as they thought. More important, they did not understand the purpose of Jesus' mission. Expecting a Messiah who would crush the sinful and support the righteous, they had little place for one who accepted and transformed the sinner and dismissed the righteous as hypocrites. There's no suggestion here that he went, when he, that he went to sinners because they gladly received him. Rather, he went to them because they were sinners. Just as a doctor goes to the sick because they are sick. Listen, Jesus wasn't condoning their behavior, those that, was in, those that were in the room. He was accepting them as people for whom he came. This was the reason for his ministry. He came to seek and to save the lost. I think there are a couple of truths that bear drawing out at this point from the text. Number one is that unless or until people admit their need for God, God is of no use to them and God is unable to help them. Doesn't that explain why so many people do not turn to God until their world falls apart? Family breakup and divorce, addictions, life-threatening illness, financial collapse. You know, these are prime instigators toward opening people up to spiritual truth. Ray Stedman put it this way, so God in his infinite love and mercy will sometimes allow trouble to enter our lives, not to destroy us, but to turn our hearts toward him. God will do whatever he must to shatter the illusion that we can handle life by ourselves. And like a surgeon who sometimes takes a, ca- a scalpel and causes pain to get to the cause of a problem, of a disease, God must sometime allow circumstances into our lives to inflict pain so that we are responsive to his healing power. I think there's a second truth that we ought to think of, and that's this. We must face our prejudices by seeing people through God's eyes. God is colorblind. God so loved the world, not just certain people, not just those who are predisposed to spiritual things, not those who grew up in a certain church or a certain denomination. If we understand the gospel message, it is that He came to all because He loves all. God seeks out those who are hurting, those who are ill, those who are sick. And he offers spiritual healing. He's always in a seeking mode. We see that constantly through the gospel accounts, as well as our own experience. Someone has said prejudice is self-inflicted blindness. The Pharisees stood outside the house and they saw Jesus eating with other tax collectors, with sinners, and they were blinded by their own prejudices. Prejudice against Matthew. Prejudice against people like him and prejudice against Jesus, this man who said he was from God, all because he associated with this class of human beings. How could he ever be the Messiah? Well, Mark tells us another story, and it deals with the clash between Jesus and a commitment to traditions. Look in the text of Mark 2, starting at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And the law of Moses required that one day be set aside for fasting. That was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The Pharisees, in an effort to showcase their devotion and commitment to the law and what they perceived to be super-spirituality, increased the number of days that they fasted. I, I think they fasted in such a way to put on a display of their Piety. It's like a big sign that's hung around their neck that says, look how spiritual I am. God must be so pleased with me. And so the question is put to Jesus, how come your disciples don't do what we do? How come they don't fast like we do? Again, we have to ask, what's behind their complaint? You know, I think it's this you're not doing things the way we do things. And may I tell you that attitude is as current today as it was then. There is usually, not always, but a desire for conformity to my convictions, my standards, my rules, my traditions, my style, my way of doing things. Now. Let me throw a caution out there, though. It's very important. In areas where the Scriptures speak clearly, delineating right from wrong, there must be conformity. You don't need to debate the rightness or wrongness of an issue where God has spoken clearly in His Word. But in many more areas than these, we must learn to give grace and, and, and latitude and freedom. You know, there, there are principles to govern our views. But I think there's always the danger, and I, I've shared this before, and I always apologize if there's any English teachers present, but there's always the danger to relativize the absolutes or absolutize the relatives. I, I think among Christians, it's often to absolutize the relatives, to take matters of preference and to make them matters of principle. And then when others don't agree or don't conform their lives and decisions and actions to ours, you know, we jump all over them as being wrong, right? Well, Jesus draws up an illustration to answer the critics. See, the Jews really knew how to do a wedding. Um, It wasn't a 30-minute ceremony followed by a brief reception, and then the bride and groom were out of there. They ate and drank and danced and celebrated for days, sometimes up to a week. He goes further here and, and, and points out the absurdity of expecting the groom's attendants to just stand around on the sidelines fasting. Well, the bridegroom is there. Well, all the festivities are going on. And then he gives a prophetic statement uh, of the coming times. He says the day is going to come when the bridegroom, that is he, the Son of God, is taken away, leaves. There will be plenty of time for sorrow and for fasting when that happens. Jesus spoke of something else. There, there's something new, he says, that is coming. A new relationship, a new focus, a new Expectations. Think back then to the experience of the Jews to whom he's talking. For centuries, the focus of worship was in the temple. It was in the observance of solemn rituals and the practice of sacrifices. But he says something new is going to come to pass. As we'll see frequently in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus runs smack dab into the traditions embraced especially by these religious leaders by the religious establishment. And these traditions became uh, the measure by which they thought they were acceptable to God. And so they wanted everybody to fall in line. They became a way to demonstrate to God and and to others that they were, in reality, self-righteous. Because everything that they were doing was always focused upon having a right standing with God, something that they did. Now listen, traditions in and of themselves are not wrong. Some traditions are good. In fact, they're great. They're a link to the past. Um, What happens, though, is that these things that link to good things become traditionalism. I, I ran across a great statement that differentiates between these two. Tradition is the living faith of those those now dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of those now living. It's important to distinguish between the form and the substance. Or put it another way, to distinguish between the principle and the practice. Jesus gives two illustrations to make his point. Go back again to verse 21. He says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins." Jesus speaks of something new that's coming, and it can't necessarily fit into the old containers. You think about the development of the church. It took some time after the founding of the church at Pentecost for this to work itself out. In the early days, as you read in the first chapters of Acts, the church still uh, operated in the old forms. But eventually, new forms took shape. Uh, The day of corporate worship moved to Sunday, the day of resurrection. Ceremonial days and rituals were discontinued. But there were always those who hung on to these old traditions and wanting to enforce them on everybody else. Even the Apostle Paul had to address this religious legalism. Let's look what he wrote to the Colossians. If you turn just a few books ahead to the books of Colossians chapter two. Paul had to often deal with that in these churches that he founded and uh, and go back and talk to him about the dangers of this. In Colossians chapter two, starting at verse 16, Paul writes, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Jesus says that in this new relationship, the containers must be different. Again, let me say to you, there needs to be caution here we can never we we must never throw out the truth of god's word in an attempt to be modern or relevant we cannot abandon the substance of truth while we change the form of expression to a changing world for example the integrity of marriage and family is being assaulted today divorce even among christians is treated no more seriously than changing your financial advisor or your hairdresser Later in our our study in Mark's gospel, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about marriage and divorce. The controversy in the Christian church over same-sex marriage is another example where principle has been abandoned in the guise of relevancy and changing times. Things have changed, many seem to be saying. Let's get modern. Let's get relevant. But these are examples of discarding the unchanging truths of God's word for a changing culture. Now, the opposite also happens in churches though. Ralph Naber wrote a book titled The Last Seven Words of the Church. He defined those words as, we never did it that way before. The danger exists that we're unwilling to change the form while not changing the substance in order to reach the current generation. Someone else writing about the deadly attitude of tradition in the church put it this way come weal or woe, our status is quo. Now, the church has often faced this. You know, at the beginning of the 20th century, Sunday school was introduced to raging criticism for its inappropriateness. The only place for Christian education of children was to be in the home, the critics said. This was an intrusion into the responsibility of parents. Try to eliminate Sunday school today and see what happens. Or, or, or do you, some of you remember Sunday night church or Wednesday night prayer meetings? Listen, there's nothing wrong with those. Indeed, there's much to be commended uh, with efforts of teaching and of training and praying. But these forms must never be interpreted as sacred cows. Music. Do we dare go there? Sure. Sure. I love the old hymns of the faith, I grew up on them. They're usually filled with great thoughts of God. There's great theology in most of those hymns. You know, there's nothing like listening to a magnificent pipe organ belting out the melody to those familiar songs. But that's not the only acceptable form of worship through song. Many of the contemporary worship songs equally speak of God and His relationship with His children. And they call us to a fresh worship of the Savior. One's not absolutely right and the other absolutely wrong. We have to discern the structure and the form while not discarding or diluting the truth principles that underlie and undergird expressions of worship. We have to distinguish between Principles that are derived from God's unchangeable word and our preferences derived from our personal tastes and experiences. Principles are unchangeable. They cross generational boundaries. They cross cultural boundaries, racial boundaries. They're timeless. But preferences are personal. They evolve and change over time. The packaging of truth must always be culturally relevant or we lose our audience. But we must never sacrifice truth on the altar of relevance. Well, have I beat that sucker to death sufficiently? We're going to see this theme many times in their study of of, of Mark's gospel. And it's as much a problem today as it is in those days. Prejudiced tradition Uh, The specific issues have changed, but the challenge remains the same. And we need God's wisdom to focus on those things that are timeless and changeless, while at the same time having the courage to adapt the approach, the medium, and the packaging of our unchanging message to a changing culture. Final thought for today. We must be ever-vigilant, to counter our personal prejudices and to weigh the appropriateness of our traditions while holding fast to the truth. Both can stand in the way of God's grace at work in our midst. And there's such such balances needed between grace and truth. The Apostle John writes an amazing thing about Jesus, the incarnate word. He says this in John 1, The word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth are not mutually exclusive. Rather, they form a unit to express God's will for our lives. Someone put it this way, grace makes truth possible, truth makes grace possible necessary. Boy, if we could operate by that axiom, would that change the world? Jesus was the embodiment of both. And God desires that we as believers individually and as the church corporately, that we would be likewise. Grace and truth. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Revealing your truth to us in your words so clearly. Thank you, Father, that when you call us into a relationship with yourself, that you have given us direction on how we're to live and truth by which we pattern our lives. You also created us differently, each one of us with different preferences, different tastes. Differences, but would you help us, Father, to sort out the difference between what is true principle from your word and what is preference from our personal convictions? May we be known as Christians as people of grace and truth. Help us never to sacrifice truth on the altar of grace or grace on the altar of truth, but might we hold those two together, often in tension but nonetheless important. And so we commit our lives to you for another week, asking that you would be at work in us. We thank you for the spiritual healing that you've brought to us in this room that have trusted in Christ, that you've brought us out of darkness into light, into your kingdom, into your family. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.